Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsudliff.com. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sada Flody, and this episode is everything you need to know about nutrition as uh, we age. So as women, we go through different stages in our lives. And, you know, of course, definitely the most, um, I think the most interesting for me right now is actually perimenopause because that's where I'm at. <laughs> and, um, and I am so, so happy and grateful to have on uh, Dr. Basma Ferris with me today. But before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that we are not giving any type of medical advice. So if you're having any medical issues, please see your healthcare provider. And we are definitely not giving any type of religious advice. So if you have any questions about your religion, please feel free to reach out to your friendly neighborhood religious leader. And this is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman who speaks about sex. So today we have Dr. Basma Ferris. So Dr. Ferris, if you could please introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers that may not know you, um, I'll give you the, the stage. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. I am a big fan. So um, I'm very excited. Uh, my name is Basma Ferris and I am a OBGYN, as you are, and certified culinary medicine specialist. So I started my career in healthcare actually as a registered dietitian, and I did practice as a dietitian for several years before deciding to go back to school. And I thought I would be something maybe a bit more directly related to to nutrition, like an endocrinologist or a gastroenterologist. But as many of us do, I fell in love with taking care of women um, across the full spectrum. And, um, and so that's what I did. So I became an OBGYN and I've been slowly just over the years honing my, um, you know, honing my career to really incorporate my two areas of interest, or as I like to say, the two, you know, the two halves of my brain, uh, combining women's health with nutrition. And, uh, so I'm really happy that you asked me to be here today to talk about nutrition, as uh, you know, across the the lifespan as women, and specifically in the perimenopausal transition. Although, you know, I want to say I'd probably rather talk about sex, but um, <laughs> we can talk about food. So there's a lot in common, right? There's a really a lot. When you when I'm when I was just thinking about how to prepare for this today, I was like, well, there really is a lot of in common. They're both yes. essential for human survival, right? Um, without food and without sex, we will, we will no longer exist as humans and they both, um, can give us a lot of pleasure. So, um, there, there is a lot in common when when we think about them both. And they can, they both can be very sensual, right? Absolutely. hundred percent using a lot of our different, you know, senses, not just, you know, not just one. And, and sometimes they can be used together. Although as a gynecologist, you know, I don't necessarily recommend um, combining food and sex, but you know, um, for, for, for different reasons, but, uh, but yeah, certainly there's a lot, there's a lot of overlap there. 
Yeah, there is. There is. So I am so excited. I just really excited. Well, first of all, I, I love your Instagram and your, um, you know, all of the recipes that you put out and then the food that you showcase. It just all looks so scrumptious. But I am really excited to get into it. So so maybe you could tell us, and I know you do focus on um, endometriosis and nutrition and things like that. So sure. um, actually, yeah. And also PCOS, it's really an area that I like to spend a lot of my time because I feel like um, people that, uh, you know, that have PCOS don't always get enough of the um, sort of the, the lifestyle and the nutrition information that they need from, um, from their doctors. But, um, in, you know, pregnancy nutrition, preconception nutrition, and then as you are, like, really, I have an interest in this, in this time of our lives, and how we can, you know, be our healthiest selves as we are experiencing this transition and looking towards, the, looking towards our futures, right? Yes. And so I think really, a lot of it is, um, because there's some just good general nutrition advice that applies to all humans, right? Uh, women at all ages and stages, children, men. Um, but, you know, certainly are there some things that we need to be thinking about as we we go through um, this time in our lives. And I think number one is a mind shift, right? Mm. I think a lot of when we're in our 20s and our 30s, a lot of our attention towards our food is around um, is around weight, is around weight maintenance or weight loss. It's around... Um, you know, a, a certain aesthetic maybe that we want to, uh, that we want to achieve for better or for worse, right? Some of it may be internal and some of those may be external factors um, that influence that. And then also our fertility, right? So preparing for pregnancy and then nutrition and pregnancy and, and, and lactation. And so, you know, the focus is going to be a little bit different as we get to, you know, get to our late 40s and, and, and early 50s. And so I think number one is the mind, the mindset, right? I think the mindset should be around um, what is it going to, what, like, what do I want this next stage of my life? And and even thinking towards the end of life, which many people don't really want to think about, but how are we, you know, how are we playing the long game, so to speak, with our health so that we age well? Absolutely. And and that's really important. Um, And and so, and then looking at our own, what are, you know, what's our own life like? What's our own lifestyle like? And what are our risk factors? Because everybody's risk factors are going to be different depending on their family history. So if you're somebody for who, you know, for which heart disease is, you know, is a big player in your family, there's a lot of people with heart disease, that's going to really come more to the forefront in the postmenopausal years. And so if you're somebody who doesn't have a lot of heart disease, but everybody has osteoporosis, that's something that's going to come more to the forefront for you in your postmenopausal years, you know, and, and, and so on and so forth, whether it's you have a lot of different cancers in, in, in your family tree, then, you know, how, like, how are you going to make these adjustments going forward? Um, but in general, and feel free to stop me because I could just keep talking and talking. But in general, I think things that we want to be thinking about are um, maintaining lean body mass. Mm, yeah. Very, very important. Um, in terms of supporting our metabolism, in, in terms of supporting our, um, our, our musculoskeletal health, 
right? Um, so in supporting our posture and our mobility and our strength as we age, super important. Um, as soon so- as you said posture, I like stood up. <laughs> I don't have very good posture, so I'm always having to remind myself. But some of that is, right, is through our, is through our strength. So, and your nutrition needs to support that. So maintaining, maintaining your, your muscle mass, cause that's going to help to support your metabolism and also support your strength and your mobility as you age. Um, and it's also going to just make you feel, you know, feel good and feel strong. But there have been studies that show people who experience in their older age, low, uh, low lean body mass actually have higher rates of morbidity and mortality from, you know, from, from, from dementia, from falls. So, so many different things that you, um, you know, can think about that actually that you might not necessarily think about. Um, what else? Bone health, right? By the time you reach your forties and fifties, you we've, we've gone beyond the time where we actually can m- increase our bone mass that actually occurs up until around age 30. So when you get to, uh, you know, where we are, it's really about trying to mitigate bone loss. So making sure that we're getting enough calcium, making sure that we're getting enough vitamin D. Um, so, uh, you know, so that's really important. And then we're going to experience changes in our body composition. So maybe we're not experiencing changes in our weight per se, but the distribution of fat in our bodies may change. So maybe people who all their life, you know, had this like really nice hourglass figure where they had a slim waist and maybe they had more, you know, they had more fat in the, you know, in their hips and, and that, you know, that sort of like curvy feminine physique that's like really so desirable, especially right now, you know, um, that may change. Uh, And that's due to decreasing levels of estrogen um, that allows us to actually start depositing more fat around our middle. And unfortunately, that fat tends to be um, the fat that's around our organs. And that's the fat that's more inflammatory. So making sure that in our diets, we are balancing that out with getting enough anti-inflammatory nutrients. So all of our fruits and vegetables that contain our antioxidant vitamins, um, so vitamin C and A and and D and E, and then all of the phytonutrients that, you know, make up our antioxidant uh, systems. And so those are really the things that I think about when I think about how should we be um, going through, you know, going through the transition and, and preparing for, you know, for aging more you know, more gracefully and healthily. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that, you know, everything that you said is so, so important. And I think often we forget what an important part, right? Nutrition plays in our lives and as we age and how important it is um, that we set ourselves up for success as we age based on what we're eating. And definitely, you know, I'd love to hear more about the antioxidants that you talk about and the different types of um, foods that are, you know, helpful. And there are people that say that during perimenopause and menopause, you know, to increase your soy content or to increase your, um, you know, yams that can give you progesterone and perhaps help with sleep, you know, because as you know, you and I both being OBGYNs, we both know that, you know, as women go through perimenopause and menopause, we start to experience those hot flashes, night sweats, mood swings, anxiety increases, depression increases, all of those things, changes in our libido and all that. Um, You know, 
Are there foods that you would recommend during this time that may help with some of those sure. you know, vasomotor symptoms, as we say? I, I love soy. I think there's, it's unfortunately been much um, maligned. And, and the soy story is very interesting. So soy contains a class of uh, chemicals, um, phytochemicals or phytonutrients that bind the estrogen receptor in our bodies. Hmm. And that scares people when they think about that. They're like, oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an estrogen that's got to be bad, which obviously we know as, as OBGYNs, you know, estrogen is not, is not all bad, but people hear that and they become afraid. But what that means is it binds the estrogen receptor, right? So for those of you who don't know exactly what I'm talking about, our cells have these things called receptors and what different chemicals will bind to them and that'll turn on different processes in the cell. So when something is bound to that receptor, it either will turn it on, right? It'll turn on the functions of that cell or it'll turn it off. But sometimes there are chemicals that will kind of partially turn it on. It's not like an, it's not an on off switch. It's more like a dimmer, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of it being all on or all off, it may be on, but just a little bit. And that actually can be beneficial for many people in different ways. If you are somebody that has a lot of estrogen and that can occur in different scenarios, different hormonal imbalances, and even sometimes in the perimenopausal transition, sometimes people will be in a high estrogen state and then you know fluctuate between high and low. Um, if you are eating these foods that are weakly binding to the estrogen receptor, it'll actually protect you from those excesses. Hmm. All right? On the flip side of that... If you are somebody who is in a low estrogen state, like really low to the point that you are having some debilitating symptoms like hot flashes and chills and night sweats, that little bit of estrogen binding, right? That little bit of um, that little like dim switch may actually give you some partial relief of your symptoms because in that case, it's giving you a little bit more estrogen effect than you would, than you're having on your own. Sure. Now, in the literature, the studies have been really inconclusive. Some people, some studies have shown that people have a lot of relief from consuming soy as a food, and others have shown really little effect. And mm. it turns out there are several different of these compounds in soy, and some have more. Um, activity or more binding to the receptor than others. And so that can account for some of the variation, right? Some soy preparations maybe have more of one compound than the other. And also maybe our receptors are slightly different. So one person's, it's like a lock and a key, right? So one person's receptor may bind to that. That's, you know, that's, we'll call it a soy estrogen for, you know, just for some, you know, for simplicity, may bind to it better. But what's also very interesting is that some people actually have gut bacteria that convert Mm. the soy, um, these soy compounds, these soy estrogens to a more potent form. And those people will actually get more relief from consuming soy. And some people, those that are not converters actually will have less relief. And that's really fascinating um, to me. And uh, there is a company that um, 
that has produced a supplement that has that more potent form. Um, and that's available on the market. It's, a, you know, I think it was created in Japan. Um, and, and so I think that's really cool. The, the soy story. Um, it's, so it's found to be, um, you know, similar in a similar class, I guess you could ca- characterize it for people who are familiar with the term, um, selective estrogen receptor modulator, right? Like a drug like tamoxifen, these yeah. compounds actually are essentially selective estrogen receptor modulators, which is really, so I think that's really cool. It's amazing. Yeah. I had no idea. So this is why it's so awesome to have you on. <laughs> now that's the, um, the yam, like that. So that brings the other question about the, right. about the progestins in yams. And there are yeah. certain classes of yams. Um, like yam as a term is like a very broad term and it refers to different root vegetables. And so some of them like purple yams may have some, um, progestin progestogenic activity. So progestin is one of our other major female hormones, right? The other uh, hormone that's produced in the ovary. And so some people will relief by, will have some symptomatic relief, especially in terms of things like insomnia, because the progestins do help us to rest a bit more. Um, And so people may find some relief with some of these topical yams. But again, the literature is kind of less, it's less, less robust but it's never going to harm you to eat yams. They're healthy. They're a great source of antioxidants and fiber. So it's not like it's going to harm you to eat some yams. And if it gives you some, you know, some relief, then that's great. That's so, you know, important to know. And, you know, you just hear all these myths. So you just, you're not sure if it's, you know, is it true? Is it not true? You know, should I be eating like 10 yams a week or should I not, you know, but, um, but this is great. It's good to know. So I'd never heard about that, the gut bacteria that, um, yeah, helps I'll, to send you, I'll send you, uh, I'll send you the yeah. studies. Yeah. No, that's it's awesome. Pretty cool. So tell me about the work that you've done on PCOS and nutrition. Sure. So that's something that I'm act- actively working on now. Um, earlier this year, I did a mini, like a little mini course, yeah. um, a one week course where I, uh, you know, had women, uh, people with PCOS participate through a series of both live and, and self-study modules um, to help them to just eat, you know, eat better to address the underlying drivers of PCOS, which are insulin resistance and mm-hmm. inflammation. And so, um, so that was really, really rewarding. So I've decided to actually flesh that out and make that even a bigger um a bigger thing. So I'm working on a 28 day course and, um, and then I'm going to start a, uh, a telemedicine practice specifically for these folks. So I'm hoping to be, yeah, to be doing that in the, um, in the new year, just waiting on my, um, just waiting on like the go ahead from the state. Really. I just need my, my, uh, my EIN so that I can, so that I can launch. Um, so I'm really, really excited about that. Um, and that that's going to be the model is going to be such where I'm going to have um, shared medical appointments. So for people out there who are not familiar, it's actually having your metal, your medical visit in a group. Mm. So you, there will be other people in the group with you who are experiencing the same thing. And that allows me to provide much more education. So, you know, in the, in the brief, office visits, you know, how limited we are in time in yes. terms of educating people. There's so many things that we need to accomplish in our short visits that, um, 
you know, that I always feel like, uh, you know, I just, there's more that I want to share and there's more that I want to, you know, that I want to educate. And this just allows a increased both length of visits and frequency of visits. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's really going to be um, really just a game changer. So I'm really excited about that. Well, that is exciting. I've actually um, never heard about shared medical visits. So uh, I know they try to do something like that with centering pregnancy. And that still exists to this day. Yeah. Yes. So centering yes. pregnancy yes. is where I first encountered shared medical appointments. And that was back actually when I was a dietitian. And that's really what gave me this idea. Um, so when I was, you know, before I went to medical school, so I would actually do some of those sessions with them, um, with the midwife in the clinic where I was working. And it's mm-hmm. still it's, you know, the program is still around uh, to this day. Mm-hmm. And then in the same place where I was working, we did shared medical appointments with um, for people with diabetes. So this is like going back, you know, 20 years. So it's making an, an older idea um, you know, new again, uh, Cleveland Clinic. Uh, does a lot of shared medical appointments. And so it's a great way to be able to um, teach nutrition and teach cooking. So as part of the program, I'm going to be in my kitchen, um, you know, just teaching, teaching people how to cook. So that's really exciting. I'm, I'm, I, I just, I can't wait to get started. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. So, so what would you recommend for somebody, let's say that has PCOS? I said, I know that you were mentioning about, you know, trying to decrease that insulin resistance, as we know that that is one of the key components of PCOS. Um, so how do you tell people to do that? Should they do like a Mediterranean diet or, you know, something where there's like low carbs or? Yeah. And so really any diet, the Mediterranean diet is a great example. Um, and, and, and I sort of use that as the prototype. I think not everybody loves the term Mediterranean diet because they feel like it is, it, you know, it excludes their, um, particular worldview or their particular culture. But, um, you know, the Mediterranean diet really in today, how we use it refers to a pattern of eating that tends to be, it's not necessarily low carbohydrate, but it's low in refined carbohydrates. So the carbs that are in the Mediterranean diet are coming from whole grains or they're coming from starchy vegetables or fruits. Um, it's not a diet that's, that's you know, typically considered low fat, but the fats, it's low in saturated fat, higher in, um, in monounsaturated fat and omega-3s and um, you know, with adequate protein. It's not a completely whole foods. It's not, sorry, it's not a complete plant-based diet rather, um, but plants feature heavily. So it's in terms of managing the insulin resistance. Yeah. It's addressing, um, reducing refined carbohydrates, planning meals that are tasty, number one, but also satisfying. You're going to provide people with energy, but without, um, you know, without stimulating or worsening their insulin resistance. And then, Chronic inflammation, again, you know, is a is a driver for um, for PCOS symptoms, and so addressing the addressing chronic inflammation through food as well. Mm. Well, that is awesome. So, tell me a little bit about um, you know you mentioned chronic inflammation a few times. So, you know, I'm interested in knowing what you think are you know inflammatory foods. Like I've heard that dairy cow's milk, right, is inflammatory, but I'm not sure about the other one. 
for some some people, not for everybody. So I hate painting foods sort of with the same brush. And certainly there are some people out there that will say you have to get rid of dairy and you have to get rid of gluten, right? And But that may not be true for everybody. And a limiting whole food groups may actually open you up to being deficient in something else if you're not Uh, doing it correctly. So when we think about addressing chronic inflammation, and just for those of you who don't know what chronic inflammation is, inflammation is actually something that's really useful. It's our immune system's way of addressing, um, you know, illness, infections, but it should turn on and it should turn off. When it's chronically turned on in low levels because of environmental factors or you know, you know, dietary factors, a lot of different reasons, then you can develop these illnesses that are a result of chronic inflammation. So when we're trying to address chronic inflammation by diet, we're doing two things. And I think everybody always thinks, oh, what do I have to give up? Right. Right. And I feel that that messaging is very negative. Mm, So, yes, we want to eliminate those inflammatory foods and the ones that are inflammatory for you. If you have lactose intolerance, certainly dairy is going to be inflammatory to you. If you have a dairy allergy, dairy is going to be inflammatory for you. If you have celiac disease or a non-celiac gluten intolerance, then gluten is going to be inflammatory for you. But other people have other allergies or other intolerances. So doing a elimination diet is actually the gold standard to identify what foods are inflammatory for you. And that's by eliminating certain foods and basically doing a challenge and seeing if your symptoms return. Um, so really, and then, so that's really fine tuning it. And so I do actually take people through, like, how do you actually properly complete an elimination diet? And then it's adding more anti-inflammatory nutrients to our diets. So for example, if we think about fats, right? Everybody's always talking about omega-3, omega-3, omega-3. Why? We have omega-3s are a unsaturated fat called a group of fats called polyunsaturated fats. And there are two main classes of polyunsaturated fats. And those are the omega-3s and the omega-6s. And Mm. we get a lot of omega-6s. Omega-6s come in the majority of our, um, a majority of oils that are used in cooking commercially. So corn oil, vegetable oil, um, safflower oil, you know, canola oil less, um, olive oil less, but many cooking oils, especially ones that are used commercially. So if you're eating commercially prepared food, whether it's in a restaurant or packaged food, um, so processed food, they're going to be higher in omega-6s. Omega-3s come from um, foods like fish oil, walnuts are a great source, flax seeds are a great source of omega-3. And when it comes to inflammation, they behave very differently. Omega-3 fats are the precursors to a class of chemicals that we have in our body called prostaglandins. And omega-3 is the precursor to the anti-inflammatory prostaglandins. And omega-6 is the precursor to the inflammatory prostaglandins. So if our diet has too many omega-6s and not enough omega-3s, we're going to have a balance towards inflammation. And so we try to tip that balance so that we have a maybe, you know, 
probably the typical American diet has a ratio of omega-6s to omega-3s of 10 to 1. And we want to shift that balance to somewhere between 4 to 1 or 2 to 1. So we really want to try to shift towards more omega-3s and less omega-6s. And that's like really one great way to uh, mitigate chronic inflammation through diet. And then you have all of your anti-inflammatory, both your uh, antioxidant vitamins, so getting enough vitamin C, getting enough vitamin E, getting enough vitamin A, and then also vitamin D, which now we know we used to think vitamin D really was only important for bone health. Um, but we learned a lot, especially during the COVID, pan, you know, just during the pandemic, the um, the influence or sort of the role that vitamin D has in in inflammation and in our immune system. And then there's all the other phytochemicals that we get from richly pigmented fruits and vegetables, um, spices like turmeric, um, chili peppers that have capsaicin. These are all these anti-inflammatory uh, chemicals that uh, if we introduce them into our, into our diet, we um, can also sort of shift that balance. That is awesome. So much important information that you just let us know. I, I feel like going into my kitchen and, <laughs> and seeing what I have and what I don't have and, and uh, you know, replacing everything with uh, anti-inflammatory substances. So, you know, that's, that's great. And I love how, you know, you give us some concrete examples, right? So that we take our health into our own hands and we can change the narrative if we haven't been eating well, or if we've been doing a lot of processed foods or whatever, you know, giving us the motivation yeah. to increase all of these anti-inflammatories in our diet to make sure that we live long. But I think that's the biggest, the ultra processed foods that are hyper palatable that these companies produce, they know they are, you know, they have labs that they, you know, test the food to figure out how to get us to just crave them more and eat them more and buy them more. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really sort of this insidious thing. If you're, if you're eating just like, you know, food that you can recognize, food that you can pronounce, food that is not, you know, that doesn't have, you know, doesn't come in a, in a shelf-stable package, you know, then, you know, it doesn't matter what your sort of dietary religion is, as long as it's full of, you know, of just good, real food. Um, and the more you can produce it at home, the better. I'm a foodie. I love eating out. Um, but you know, you can't do it all the time because you don't know exactly, you don't know exactly what's in it, right? Everybody who's, they're all trying to, they have a business to run too. So, you know, you gotta, yeah. you gotta, so, you know, home cooking is really important. I feel like, um, and, and taste is really important. So figuring out how to make food that is both good for you, but also is, is tasty because, you know, God gave us taste buds for a reason. I'm not entirely sure what that reason is, but, you know, we have them. And so, um, you know, we should, we should enjoy. Um, and then other things, you know, just going back to, you know, we started talking we sort of got on a, got on a tangent, um, but just in terms of thinking about, um, you know, perimenopause and menopause, um, just thinking about caffeine intake and being mindful of not having too much caffeine late in the day. And if you drink alcohol to limit your alcohol consumption, because that can interfere with your sleep and exacerbate your hot flashes. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that that is so so good. I just you know I feel like I could listen to you all day. Oh, <laughs> I could talk all day. <laughs> no, such important information, you know. And and you're right. We did um, stray a little bit on <laughs> what the topic was, but it was all good information, yeah. right? Yeah. All very important information. What about women that are already in menopause? You know, anything that um, you think perhaps they should add to their diet? I know you mentioned anti-inflammatories. You mentioned omega threes. You know, I know you also mentioned changing that shift between you know the omega six and the omega threes. But anything else that maybe you could just say, you know, something. As we, you know, our our caloric needs change, like change and they decrease with time. But what doesn't change is our protein requirement. Mm. So we, we, you know, there's an absolute protein requirement, um, you know, based on your, based on your weight and your muscle mass that doesn't really, um, that as our caloric requirement decreases and if their protein requirement stays the same, it actually becomes a little bit of a larger part of your diet. Um, And I think when people are being really maybe restrictive about their calories, that can suffer sometimes that, you know, make sure that we're getting enough protein. Um, The RDA, you know, the recommended daily allowances is 0.8 milligrams of uh, protein per kilogram. But many people will say that that is really inadequate, that it should be, you know, maybe somewhere around 1.2. There's some that like the, you know, I like to call them like the meatheads. Well, like think that you need like two grams per day. Um, And so, you know, but some were certain, it's certainly more than the 0.8 grams per, sorry, I said milligrams, it's grams per kilogram um, per day. And, um, if you're somebody that eats um, mostly plant-based, that's going to be even a little bit more challenging. So you have to really be paying attention to the um, the amount of protein uh, that's in your that's in your um, that's in your diet. So that's is that just to one. keep up? Is that just to keep up your muscle mass? Correct. Then yep. Uh, so you don't lose your muscle mass. Much. Yeah. Right. So I guess. Um, so the other ways that, you know, we maintain our muscle mass is to do those weight bearing exercises, mm-hmm. um, but also you can't so create something from nothing, right? So you need I the building know. blocks. We Absolutely. can, we can make some of the amino acids, but some of them are what we call essential. We can't produce yeah. them. We need to consume them. And so, yes. So you need the, you need to do the exercise, but if you actually don't have the amino acids to build the muscle, you just, you can't. So Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right in that, you know, I myself, I'm always looking to decrease meat in my diet, but you're absolutely right. Is I, of course, you need something. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of different ways of getting protein. Um, I myself, I I eat, I'm an an omnivore, I eat everything. Um, But I lean towards, you know, a lot, very, a lot of fruits and vegetables. And, you know, um, and that's just, a, because that's how I like to eat and that's sort of how I was raised, but, um, but always having to be mindful of making sure that I have some, even, you know, some either plant or animal based protein. Uh, and, um, and that's really important. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, I, um, 
I really do feel like I could keep talking to you, <laughs> but um, it's just so much, such a wealth of information. So I think that's awesome. So what if people were interested in following you and looking up your course and things like that? How can they reach out to you? So I am on Instagram. In fact, I have, I should probably consolidate. I have a few different accounts, but you can follow me um, on Instagram at Dr. Basma Ferris. And then I have my new, uh, for my new business, it's Polly Prep, P-O-L-L-Y-P-R-E-P. And the idea mm-hmm. is it's that it's school for people with PCOS to learn how to manage their health. And so you can follow me there so you can find out when I'm launching. Um, and then I also have um, my my personal website, which is basmaferris.com and the polyprep.com website as well. Wow. Awesome. That is great. So you said hopefully um, in the new year is when you I hope to so. launch. I was hoping to launch by the end of the year, but you know, I'm just, I'm waiting on this date to give me the, you know, the go ahead. So, you, uh, you know, as a physician, we are under extra scrutiny and need to, you know, dot our I's and cross our T's. And so, um, you know, people who are not physicians can just easily go online and, and, and start their business, but it's a little bit more complicated, at least in New York state. And so right. I'm just waiting on, waiting on the proper paperwork. So, and I'm in the meantime, working on everything, you know, in the background. So, but I'm really excited about that. That's great. So do you do, um, culinary classes as well? Do you teach people how to cook? Um, I mean, I will be for my, for my program, but otherwise right now, um, I'm not, I wish I could have, that's really my dream. Um, if I could have, you know, open a teaching kitchen and maybe I will, that might be the next thing. Um, you know, if I can find an affordable space, New York city, real estate being what it is, um, yeah. but I would love, you know, love a brick or brick and mortar space so that I could, so that I could do that. So, you know, maybe yeah, in the future, maybe in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. What, uh, I mean, this was such a treat and I really, really enjoyed talking to you. I Um, had a great time. And and I'm, like I said, I'm a big fan. And so (laughs) really it was a, it was a great honor to be able to come on here on your podcast. I love what you, I love what you're doing. Oh, thank you. So, well, we are done here and it's been real and really intimate, really fun. Uh, And remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you're having any issues with your health, please see your friendly neighborhood healthcare provider. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsadaf.com. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast.